The material possessions were simply a physical manifestation of what was going on inside. This external clutter was just a representation of all this internal clutter, emotional clutter, spiritual clutter, mental clutter, just inside clutter, what's going on inside me. And so by dealing with the stuff that, that I had been so focused on, I was able to start looking inward and actually just being more aware of, of what was going on inside. I'm Rich Roll, and this week on the podcast, it's all about minimalism with author, speaker, documentary filmmaker, and Christopher Walken lookalike, Joshua Fields Milburn. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. What's going on, people? How are you? What is happening? Welcome or welcome back to the podcast, my podcast, the show where I have the great privilege, the great honor of spending quality time with extraordinary individuals, going deep and long with some of the most inspiring thought leaders and positive paradigm-breaking change makers all across planet Earth, people who have devoted their lives to making the world a better place, all in the interest of helping people like you and me just live and be better. So I've got a really fun conversation for you today with Joshua Fields Milburn, who, along with his childhood friend, his best friend from fifth grade, Ryan Nicodemus, comprised something called The Minimalists, which is basically two guys who write, they speak, they make films, and generally uh, espouse the virtues of focusing their experience, their journey on life's most important things, which actually aren't things at all. Uh, but before I get into all the great prefatory stuff that I want to say about Joshua and what's in store with this conversation, can we take care of a little business? Let's take care of a little business. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics. And just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. 
And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem. A problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Okay, you guys, thanks for indulging me. On to today's show, Joshua Fields Milburn, Minimalism. What can I say about this from an introductory point of view? I guess I would say that if there's one thing I can really relate to, it's that relentless pursuit of the American dream because I'm a guy who spent years chasing that big high-paying job and then slaving ridiculous hours, but without any real meaningful conviction about what I was doing or why I was doing it, of course, only to one day wake up and discover that I was pretty miserable and wondering, how did I get here? What happened? What am I doing? And that empty hole in my gut, in my spirit that I realized was only going to get filled by changing how I was living, by completely altering my lifestyle and pursuing a more personally meaningful way to really live more deliberately. And I think this is a really common thing. And it's definitely the path of today's guest because Joshua is a guy who really not all that long ago was mired in the corporate grind. He was banking six figures and chasing happiness by doing what we do, you know, accumulating lots of stuff. But the faster he ran, the further away it was, the more it eluded him. And that bottomless hole in his spirit just continued to grow deeper. And for Joshua, everything came to a head in 2009 when in rapid succession, his mother fell ill and his marriage dissolved. 
And he was forced to take a look at himself in the mirror and what was reflected back at him didn't exactly please him. And he made this decision that it was time to change. It was time to change everything. And his search for a more fulfilling way of life ultimately led him to this lifestyle called minimalism, which of course is what we're gonna talk about today, and the rest is history. Today, Joshua and his buddy Ryan are the dynamic duo behind TheMinimalist.com, which is one of the internet's go-to destinations for living a meaningful life with less stuff. I think they've got over 4 million readers at this point, so really uh, a great resource for this subject matter. Together, these two guys have written several books, and they've been featured on basically every major TV network and major publication, everything from Time to the New York Times to the Wall Street Journal. They've given TED Talks. They've spoken at places like South by Southwest and Harvard Business School. They created a publishing imprint. They launched a podcast. They opened a coffee house. And they most recently made this really great documentary called, shockingly, Minimalism, which I recently shared in my weekly roll call email. It's, it's really great, and you guys should all check it out. So this is obviously a conversation about Joshua's life path, and it's also a conversation about minimalism, what it is, but also what it isn't, and how owning less can actually make room for more, more meaning, more time, more passion, more experiences, more growth, more contribution, more contentment, and ultimately more freedom. And it's a conversation about, to coin Joshua's phrase, why we should love people and use things, because the opposite never works. I'm good to go. Let's if you're do good it, to man. go, let's do it, brother. How you doing? Outstanding. How you doing? Welcome to Los Angeles. Yeah, thanks for having me in we're your doing, beautiful city. Yeah, we're doing this podcast in your Airbnb, which. Uh, ironically or perhaps uh sort of serendipitously just yeah. happens to be a very minimal pad it's uh it's, it's very appropriate <laughs> yeah. for you know we we kind of dragged the little table out here and you brought your whole setup with this is this is beautiful thanks it's for having good, me man. well uh I'm, I'm thrilled to be talking to you i've been following uh your journey and, and ryan's journey for quite some time and uh really love everything that you guys have been putting out into the world so uh it's just cool to be talking to you man and and i want to like kind to kick this off by saying at the very outset your documentary freaking rocks man oh. it is so mm. good i mean it's really good you guys should just be so proud of Thank what you. you've created and i think going into it i watched a lot of documentaries and it wasn't that i didn't expect it to be good but i was really pleasantly surprised at just how beautifully shot and and how well well kind of um, organized and orchestrated the story is. It's like much more emotional than I expected it to be. Mm. And I think it, it did a phenomenal job of achieving what I imagine your purpose uh, and intention behind the movie is, which is to convey um, a very real sense of what minimalism really is, you know, behind the uh, decluttering aspect of of what everyone seems to kind of want to talk about initially to really talk about what's going on socially and culturally, this cultural malaise, this, you know, I would go so far as to call it a dis-ease of, you know, material compulsive consumerism that has come to define how we live our lives. Well, first off, thank you. We worked really hard on it and had a great team that really helped us put this together. I mean, 
we've been doing this for about six years now. We started it in December of, of 2010, and we spent the better part of three years on the documentary just because you know, for, the, for a while it's been the Josh and Ryan show, mm-hmm. and that's been fine. You know, we've, we started writing a blog, and then we wrote books, and we started a podcast, and we have TED Talks and social media, and, and there are different ways for us to communicate. You're and, doing what you do when you build a brand. Right, right, <laughs> and, and it sort of started unintentionally at first. I didn't even know what a blog was when we first started it. You know, I thought a blog was where 83-year-old ladies catalog pictures of their cats. It turns out those that are, exists. That's part of blogging. Yeah, well, those are just the really successful blogs. Right. Um, but but no, like we we wanted to. I think as you were saying there, it wasn't just about the decluttering. I mean, the how-to is compelling, but only so much. I mean, we all understand how to declutter our closet. It's why you never see me and Ryan write. You know, here are the sixty-seven ways to clean out your kitchen. Mm-hmm. I'm much more focused on the why to than the how-to. Mm-hmm. What's the purpose behind it? And so for me, it started with a question, how might your life be better with less? And, and that was the question that the documentary sort of centered around or circled around because we wanted to show that minimalism wasn't a, a radical lifestyle, right? We wanted to show that it was a practical lifestyle. And the thing that was so appealing to me with minimalism when I, when I first started was that there were all these different recipes, whether it was Colin Wright, who's in, in the documentary, and everything he owns fits in his backpack. He owns right. you know, like 52 things, and he travels to a new country every four months. And, and in fact, he doesn't even pick the country. His readers at his blog, Exile Lifestyle, they pick the country for him. So he sort of outsourced even that decision in his life. <laughs> and Because decision fatigue is is part of the malaise that leads to minimalism, right? It's not the stuff, it's what's in your mind as well. I think so. And so I think the, the stuff is the initial bite at the apple. For me, right. the, the, the material possessions were simply a, a physical manifestation of what was going on inside. This external clutter was just a representation of all this internal clutter, mm-hmm. emotional clutter, spiritual clutter, mental clutter, uh, just inside clutter. What's going on inside me? And so by dealing with the stuff that, that I had been so focused on, I was able to start looking inward and actually just being more aware of, of what was going on inside. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, that was a whole process, but yeah, it started with this stuff. It's not like just renting a dumpster and throwing all your stuff in it is the answer here. It, it, you could do that and still be utterly miserable. Go home to, to an empty house and sulk after removing a bunch of pacifiers. Right. <clears throat> There's a lot of uh, analogies to addiction recovery. I think mm. I, I'm in recovery and mm. I know addiction is part of your background and, and your story and Ryan's. Uh, but as they say in recovery, um, you know, the drugs and the alcohol that's not the problem, that's the solution, right? Mm. And then when you take that away, that's just the first step of addressing the underlying cause of whatever was leading you to that compulsive behavior. And in a very similar way, the accumulation of stuff, you know, on the extreme, whether it's hoarding or living ostentatiously, is really uh, just symptomatic of what's important to you or what's going on internally. And the removal of that stuff is just the first step on, you know, what I would characterize as a journey to greater self-knowledge of really, you know, wrestling with and, and wrangling with 
what's important to you and getting to the bottom of that. Yeah, I think most of us probably aren't candidates for the show hoarders, right? right. I mean, that is an extreme mental illness and, and there are a lot of problems around that. But, but there is, as you said, this sort of dis-ease going on. The average American household has more than 300,000 items in it. Uh, it's a stat from the LA Times. That's mm-hmm. not me going around counting people's stuff. Which is absolutely insane. It, it, that's it, the average that, that is the average and and you know most of us are average we, we mm-hmm. like to say that you know I'll be different but really if I follow the same recipe I'm going to bake the same cake as you right and and so I I certainly had achieved a lot by by my mid to late 20s and it was after a very humble beginning you know, Ryan and I grew up really poor food stamps welfare drug abuse alcohol abuse in the households and, and you know, I thought for me, the reason we were so discontented growing up is, well, we didn't have a lot of money, right? Mm-hmm. And that was certainly an ingredient there that that will lead to some discontent if you can't you know, fulfill your basic needs and even these sort of basic comforts. And and so by, by, by going the other direction, you know, when I turned 18, I skipped the college route, went and got a sales job and started climbing that corporate ladder. And I realized you can make pretty good money if you work six or seven days a week, 70 or 80 hours a week. And and by age 19, I was making $50,000 a year, which in Dayton, Ohio is unbelievable. It's more than my parents made. And, and of course, I was spending $65,000 a year, though. Mm-hmm. And so I had my first encounter with debt. And, and, and then... I said, well, maybe I just need to adjust for inflation. It's not $50,000 a year that's going to make me happy. It's 75000 And when you get there, of course, you're spending six figures. When you start making six figures, it's this cycle that, that is never-ending. I'm always spending toward the next promotion, buying the next thing that is supposed to make me happy in some non-existent hypothetical future. Right. And, and despite the self-understand or the, you know, intellectually, we all understand like the, the stuff doesn't make you happy. You know, the important things in life are free. Like all of the, you know, sort of things that we hear growing up are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that doesn't apply to me. Like secretly deep down, I don't really believe that because I think if I can just get that, if I get the new Tesla with like the insane mode, like that's going to be the thing, right? Sure. And it's pretty and course, cool. Yeah. And it is cool. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. No. It's your relationship to that. And of course you, if you are lucky enough to get that, then you look around and you're like, Oh yeah, but that guy over there has that. You yeah. Know? And you chase that like a heroin addict, you know, looking for, you know, that first high again, all the way to the grave. And as somebody who lives in Los Angeles, you know, I'm surrounded by a lot of, very wealthy people, very successful people, but also a lot of incredibly unhappy people, right? So what do you take from that? And much like yourself, you know, I was on a similar career trajectory and, you know, partnership track on a law firm at a big law firm and that whole deal. And, and, you know, had that moment of looking around and, and even like sort of surveying all the partners in the firm and their crazy success and knowing like, I really don't, like, not only do I not want to be them, like, I don't really like them. Yeah. Like, these are not people I would hang out with, mm-hmm. you know, had I had my choice, but still relentlessly pursuing it and the 80 hour weeks and the, you know, you're a loser if you're not ordering takeout dinner every single night and all that kind of stuff that I know, you know, you relate to. Um, it's so difficult for people to actually, you know, embrace that there is another way. And, you know, when, when someone like yourself or, you know, Leo Babauta or the other people that are kind of blazing this path, um, step out and say, Hey, over here, like there's another way. 
let's let's like reexamine this American dream from mm. a different perspective. Uh, you're considered like some crazy martyr outlier sure. who's like breaking paradigms, and that's makes it very uncomfortable well, for when, other people. When we hear about someone getting rid of their stuff, that it's supposed to be a telltale side of of suicide. Now, mm-hmm. oh, this person's getting. In fact, people ask me when I first started sort of shedding the excess stuff. Right, are you okay? Yeah, are you okay, um, James? Do you know I'm James right. Altucher? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So James, you know, he's doing this crazy experiment where uh-huh. he's just living in there. He gave away all his stuff, and yeah, he owns he essentially says. nothing. Yeah. Basically, you know, yeah, but he's also super successful and he's just a real, he's an amazing guy. I just, I absolutely love him. But he says the same thing. Everybody's calling him up saying, are you okay? Or, you know, like everything must be terrible if you're doing this. Like there's something wrong. It's it's interesting that that that's the the direction we go when we're trying to get the things out of the way. People think that, that, you know, we, we're, because we're trying a different template, you, you mentioned the American dream. I, I think we've sort of been sold this meme of the American dream that if you achieve this, then you'll be happy. And so we're constantly chasing happiness. But I think that's part of the problem is, is that chasing of happiness. I don't think happiness is a thing that we can chase and, and it's making us miserable. I think happiness isn't the point of all of this. I think, yeah, I think happiness is even the wrong word to use. Like, yeah. I think it's, you know, finding meaning and purpose in your life. I agree. Um, you know, long-term satisfaction and, and happiness is a byproduct. It's a that. byproduct. Yeah. Like chasing happiness will avail you nothing. Yeah. Right. And in your movie, um, I mean, Sam Harris says it, as eloquently as any human being possibly can because he's Sam Harris, but I can't remember exactly what he said, but he's like talking about, he's like, it's very interesting how the human being is on this, you know, sort of gestalt of, of, you know, always accumulating more and, and perpetuating the delusion that that's leading to some greater sense of self-satisfaction when in fact all evidence is to the contrary. Yeah, it it is. And, and yet, uh, we we think we're going to be different. You mentioned the partners in the law firm. And I experienced the same thing. I was in the retail world. I, I was a director of operations for 150 retail stores, mm-hmm. which I know is really ironic with the whole minimalism bit. But But as I climbed that corporate ladder, I... I saw these guys who I emulated, who I wanted to be like. But the closer I got... I realized they were kind of miserable. But of course, I was going to be different, even though I was following the same path. And, mm-hmm. you know, there, I had a boss who had a second heart attack at age 50. I had a coworker who was 30 years old who had a heart attack. I mean, these guys were unhealthy, as was I. I weighed 80 pounds more than I weigh now. You're super skinny, dude. It's hard to picture <laughs> you, 80 pounds. I think you, you, even, you even said, like, you first hooked up with Ryan when you guys were little kids because yeah. you were both the fat kids. But I was I, literally I, the I fattest kid in school. I have, like, a really hard time I know. visualizing it, yeah, that. There, we, you, thankfully, I have photographic evidence that I've put on social media occasionally. But <laughs> I was, I mean, I had, I, not only did I have the mullet, just so we could sneer at that, but I had just the double chin and the gut it was that's i mean i was all chin and gut basically yeah Yeah. now you're rocking like the second coming of christopher walken (laughs) (laughs) i've gotten that once or twice um yeah so so i found that as i was climbing that ladder it's not that those people were innately bad people but they didn't share my same values right and 
Or maybe they do or or did, but it's on lockdown. Oh, or they just didn't, or they were like me, and I didn't even know what my yeah, values were. Like I didn't know what was important anymore. Disconnection. Yeah, and so if you, if you don't know what what is what's important to you, how could you possibly pursue it? And that's where I was in my life, where I was successful in a very narrow sense. Age twenty seven, achieved everything I ever want just to realize that everything I ever wanted wasn't actually what I wanted now. And, and then, of course, you know, and I talked about it in the film. You know, my mom died. My marriage ended both right, in the same All right, but let's slow line. down here. Like, I want to backtrack it a little bit. I mean, first of all, to kind of, you know, parse uh, what it was like for you growing up, you know, living in a household with a mother who was a practicing alcoholic and kind of were you on food stamps, you're on welfare, right? So you both. Ba- basically, you know, very poor. And that's a trauma, you know, that's a very traumatic, um, on some level you could characterize it as, you know, abuse, not conscious abuse, but like, you know, that, that had its toll on you. So I don't think anybody would put it past you, uh, for you to grow up thinking, I don't want that. Like I, I'm, I'm going to be wealthy. I'm never going to be in this situation of being in welfare. Like I'm going to stay away from drugs and alcohol. I've seen what that does. So it's not like anybody would say like, well, wouldn't you know that, you know, of course you're going to, of course you're going to go out into the world and say, I'm going to try to make the most money that I possibly can Mm. to distance myself from that experience. Mm. Yeah. I, I didn't know we were poor growing up necessarily. I mean, I don't think you know it when you're mm-hmm. in it. You know, you, I lived in a neighborhood where everyone else was was poor too, mm-hmm. and that was sort of, sort of the status quo. By high school, you start to figure it out because cliques form and, and and people take different paths and different groups are in vogue, and you can't be a part of them if you don't have a particular identity or status or or, or whatever. And, and the weird thing is that we weren't poor simply because of lack of money we were poor because of repeated bad decisions Mm -hmm. in in our case and and, you know part of that was my mom being an alcoholic and and, you know constantly losing jobs and 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 going through the whole process Uh, but what i figured out as i sort of rose the ranks throughout my 20s and i started making money is that money just allowed me to make worse decisions if I was still making bad decisions. Yeah. It amplified those bad decisions. And, and so I was discontented growing up because of repeated bad decisions, and I was discontented as an adult throughout my 20s because of repeated bad decisions. And, and so money isn't inherently bad. Uh, it can be used for, for great things. And I'm certainly not allergic to money, but... I'm far more deliberate now, even with less money than than you know in the corporate world making several hundred thousand dollars right. a year. Well, I think what happens, or I should say, in my experience, this is what happened, and and tell me if this resonates with you. But you know, I when when you're working eighty hours, ninety hours, a hundred hours a week on a job that you don't really like or isn't sort of consistent with your values, whether you're conscious of that or not. Um, you know, when, when it comes to 10 o'clock and you're finally going to go home, like, what are you going to do? Like go home, go to sleep and wake up so you can do it all over again. In my case, I made bad decisions that led to a lot of self-destructive behavior, but what you see a lot is, and what I did was overspend like, well, yeah, I'm unhappy here, but if I lease that car, you know, that's going to make me happy. And so very quickly, you know, as you kind of ramp forward, you're in over your head all over the place. And then you're like, well, I guess this is just my, now I'm stuck 
And this is just the way I'm going to have to live my life, like all the way to the grave. Maybe next time I'll figure out, you know, a way to live more with more satisfaction. And I see that a lot with people. They just, they get mortgages that are just a little bit out of reach. Like everything's just a little bit out of reach that keeps you stuck. Right. And there's that great example of the banker in the documentary, um, AJ Wall Street and got that promotion. Uh And he realized like if he took it, that was going to be it for him. Right. Right. Yeah, he he really he got to this point in his life where he had achieved this level of success that he knew that if he if he didn't walk away now he'd never be able to walk away from it. And, and I think you and I experienced that. And most people who have that level of success and are still discontented by that because their short term actions don't align with their their long term values, they they experience this stuckness. And they're trapped by lifestyle, by acquisition, by identity as well. And, and we really get wrapped up in that identity. That's the most powerful thing, I think. I think so. And in fact, when we go out and tour, do events and stuff, people ask, like, what was the hardest thing for you to give up? And like, I'm going to say a throw pillow or a TV or, or something. My identity. It was definitely because the first thing we ask someone is, what do you do? The and, story you tell yourself about who you are. Right, and and being able to give it in a soundbite too, like whatever is fits on your business card. That's who I am as a person. But when you flip that question around and really think about it, like I I do a lot of things. I drink water. I go for walks. I watch movies. Yeah, there are all things, a ton of things I do. But when we posit the question that way, what we're really saying is, is where do you work? How much money do you earn? So I can compare you to me on the socioeconomic yeah, it's ladder. It's a terrible question. You it, know what I mean? It's like, why isn't the question, you know, what gets you excited or mm-hmm. like, what are you super into? Yeah, but what I'm are sure you passionate you, about? But how do you answer that question now? You do so many things. So do you have a stock answer or do you switch it up? Or like, I, I never know how to answer it. Sure. Now. Well, I, that's a cool thing. Like, that's awesome to not know how to answer it, I think. That's actually a good answer, though, right? I don't know how to answer <laughs> that. Um, uh, for me, it actually shifted. So I was still in the corporate world. Uh, I was 28 years old. And for the longest time, I wanted to write literary fiction. That was always my thing. I had done it. I was an aspiring writer for a very long time, which really just means I didn't write that much. Uh, I aspired every single day, though. And uh, as I as I started to shift and realize that I don't want to be as tied to this identity because people ask me all the time at networking events, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? And then I would just recite what was on my business card and then ask them what they did. And we'd spend the next 10, 15 minutes talking about things we weren't that passionate about. And so I did an experiment for a year. Anytime I was in an event, people would say, what do you do? And I'd say, I'm really passionate about writing. Hmm. This is while you're still... I was still in the corporate world. Yeah, I was still in that world. And and notice I didn't say I'm a writer. I used the verb instead of the noun. Because if I said I'm a writer, then you get the accusatory questions, right? Right. Who's your publisher? Have you published? Yeah. Because then it's still like a a contest of trying to measure your social value. Right, right. And and I didn't want to answer the, you know, have you you read anything that I... Or written anything I would have read? And and the truth was, no, at the time, no. Not unless you're reading, like, you're breaking into my computer and reading, you know, uh, Microsoft Word files or something. And, And so, no, I just wanted to shift the conversation a bit. And so I say, I'm really passionate about writing. And then I just flip the question around. I say, what are you passionate about? And occasionally I get the deer in headlights stare like, uh-oh, like we're, I'm, my job, and my, what's my answer here? I was prepared to tell you what's on my business card. And, and so 
Most of the time, though, once we got past that initial awkwardness, it changed the trajectory of the question, of the, of the conversation, so that we talked about something that we were interested in, some, some of our desires or passions, and someone, instead of telling me they're an accountant, they would tell me they were passionate about snowboarding, or they were passionate about playing basketball, whatever it may be, and it, just because it's something you enjoy doing, it doesn't mean you have to do that for a living, necessarily. Right. Well, I think that that's interesting. I, I haven't heard you speak about that before, because um, the way I sort of look at these things is there's usually some kind of inciting incident or or painful moment that triggers this, um, you know, change in trajectory. Like the Wall Street banker guy, getting the, it was actually a good thing that happened to him by <laughs> most accounts, right? That uh-huh. triggered this change in his life. But usually it's something painful, right? And in your case, it was your mom contracting lung cancer mm-hmm. uh and then you know you visiting her and kind of you know taking care of her stuff and and what i get out of that is that, that was a, a real moment in which you really had to kind of uh do an inventory about about how you were living your life and that kind of set in motion everything that's followed but but the fact that you were prior to that going around talking about what you're passionate about tells me that it was percolating there right you were getting ready for a change and that that's like a manifestation that you were thinking about these things earlier yeah i was i was thinking about for me it was like i said writing fiction and and you know this whole path that we've taken since then has been a really beautiful accident and i have published a, a novel that i wrote in my 20s and and i've had the opportunity to to write a lot and write nonfiction, write memoir and, and and it's that's still the thing i'm passionate about and i've transferred the skill a little bit but but it's the thing I'm most passionate about, even though we have all these different vehicles now with the documentary and podcast, whatever, the thing I'm most passionate about is, is writing. And, and, uh, you know, around that time with, with, with my mom and I haven't really talked much about this. I don't actually know if I've ever talked about it, but in retrospect, my biggest, my biggest regret in, in life has been, I didn't spend more time with her after I found out after I found out that she, you know, she was dying mm-hmm. and we all knew she was dying. And, and yet, man, I was so damn busy. Right. Yeah. Well, she was, when she was diagnosed, it was stage four lung yeah. cancer. Right. So, you know, by all accounts, there's not going to be much time anyway. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and so you visited her at the very end. I spent a lot of time with her in 2009. So December 2008 is when she found out and she called me. It was two days before Christmas. I was in my corner office downtown Cincinnati, Ohio, and uh, I got the phone call. And actually, it went to voicemail and several calls from her throughout the day. And I called her back at night. It was I was still in my office 7 p.m. at night and called her back and. Uh, I could instantly tell she had been drinking again, and she had been off uh, alcohol for at least a few years, several oh, wow. years. Uh-huh. And you know, you you get you you when you know someone that well, it was like, oh my goodness, like I, something wrong is going on. And then, not only was she drinking, to get this news on top of it, and so I spent a good chunk of of the next nine months uh, until she passed uh, in October of of two thousand nine. I spent a lot of time down in Florida with her. She mm-hmm. was down in St. Petersburg. And, uh, yeah, it was... It, but I didn't spend enough time. I, I, in retrospect, I wish I would have, you know, just up and left the job right then and and at least spent more time with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't have a great relationship 
uh, ever since I, I moved out. But it wasn't a terrible relationship either. It's just it felt strained from you know the first eighteen years of my life, and so being being able to to go back and and repair that, I don't think I I, I didn't do a very good job of that. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. But when you do go down there, you start to kind of look around at how she's sort of collected material possessions throughout her life and the clutter that she had surrounded herself with and and my impression is that that got you thinking about how we relate to the items that we surround ourselves with, right? Is that correct? It didn't really hit me until she did pass. I had to make one last trip down there. So I, I went down there seven times over the course of nine months. And oh, wow. spent a few days you know, here, a few days there. But even then, it wasn't that much time. It, not as much time as I would have liked to have spent. You have brothers and sisters? I have one brother, yeah. yeah. And, and um, yeah, uh, so, so when she passed, though, I had to make that last trip to deal with her stuff. And then, you know, I get there and she has a tiny one-bedroom apartment. But there are about three apartments worth of stuff crammed in there. Now, now it's not like she's a hoarder. I mean, there weren't... You know, there was, she was 
like me, honestly, or I was like her, more right. likely. I mean, it's anybody who's downsizing from however she was living in Ohio to Florida, right? And mm-hmm. just bringing all your stuff with you and realizing, well, it doesn't quite fit in this one bedroom apartment, but I'm not quite ready to let go of it either. Right, right. So she, she's like any, that's everybody. Yeah. Right? And, and, and a lot of it's in my case, and, and I think in her case as well, uh, it was well organized hoarding, right? Like it, there weren't, items strewn throughout the house on the floor and everything else it was an ordinal system of boxes and bins and drawers and shelves and 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 a very organized way to sort of hide the stuff that isn't just not adding value to 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 her life but in many cases getting in the way uh for many of us i know for me like there there were because the price tag is 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 there you you buy the item but then you don't think about the other sort of embedded costs the the environmental costs but also the cost to store it to take care of it to put gas in it to charge it whatever the thing may be and realizing okay the the, the cost goes way beyond the price tag and then there's also the mental clutter that goes along with that the emotional clutter the, this this other clutter that is harder to put a name on because you you don't see it as a as a physical artifact as a way of trying to empathize with her and and maybe this is playing devil's advocate a little bit um i would imagine it sounds like she was kind of alone right like down in florida i mean yeah but she had so many friends she She, she was an amazing extrovert so uh but at the same time too is there an argument that a a rationale or reason for keeping a lot of this stuff around is because it's a way of externalizing memory right like each item is an association that when she sees that or touches it or smells it can trigger something you know maybe pleasurable about something that happened or you know i would imagine she had a lot of your stuff there too to help her you know kind of connect with you even though you weren't present Mm. so it's a very human thing i think it's more Maybe it's a little more nuanced and complicated than just, you know, throw everything out. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and and really, I mean, only thing I can do is project my own assumptions onto mm-hmm. to her experience as well. And so so it's not me speaking for her necessarily or, or saying this is this is how she was living her life. But I'm projecting my own experience on, on onto her. So it's a bit of a, a narrative overlay in that sense. But I, I think that so when I went down there that last time to deal with her stuff. You know, I did what basically any good son would do. I decided to rent a U-Haul. Uh, in fact, the largest U-Haul they had. It was a 26-foot U-Haul, so I had to wait an extra day for that. And and uh, rent a storage locker back in Ohio mm-hmm. because I realized I couldn't co-mingle my stuff with mom's stuff or her stuff with my stuff. I already had the big house. Uh, with you know, three bedroom, four bedrooms, uh, three bathrooms, two living rooms. All the, I already had a house with a full basement full of stuff, basically. Mm-hmm. And, and so a storage locker, though, that would let me hold on to everything just in case I needed it. Right. Right. And, and hold on to all those memories. Yeah. Right. And, and so I, I did that and I'm, I'm packing all this stuff up. And then I looked under her bed. She had this, this tall bed with a bunch of boxes under it. And there were these four uh, printer paper boxes, like kind of heavy, and, and they were just sealed with just a ton of, of packing tape. And all they said on the side of the four boxes was one, two, three, four. And I'm like, what the heck could be in these boxes? And I realized it was, it was my old elementary school paperwork. Mm-hmm. It was grades one through four. And then 
I'm like, well, why was mom holding on to all this stupid paperwork, right? There's something very sweet about that, too. There, there is something know? sweet about it. And, and, and that's what I realized the next moment as I started Yeah, you, I can't rifling, this out. I, well, I started yeah. rifling through it, and I, and I was like, all these memories came rushing back to me. And then I realized, well, she wasn't just holding on to paperwork. She was holding on to all the memories mm-hmm. that were in those boxes, right? But then I thought to myself, wait a minute. Those boxes have been sealed for more than two decades. Right, it's that thing of like someday I'm going to look through this. But yeah, that day never comes. Yeah, and and they have been not only sealed for two decades, but had moved, been moved from several different residences without being opened at all. And I think we all experience that in some level. The huge carbon footprint of your fourth grade math test. <laughs> Yeah, and so so it's it's there, it's being stored, but it's not being accessed. And and that moment actually made me realize something important for the first time. Our memories aren't inside our things. Our memories are inside us. And I realized that mom didn't need to hold on to those boxes to hold on to a piece of me because I was never inside those boxes. But then of course I looked around at all her stuff. And I realized I was getting ready to do the same thing, except instead of storing her, her memories in a box under my bed, I was getting ready to cram it all into a, a giant box with a padlock on it, mm-hmm. just in case. Yeah, just in case. And, and, and that point is illustrated you know, quite beautifully in the film where you talk, I, don't, I can't remember who the expert is, but there's a guy who comes on and he talks about how the average size of the American home has kind of swelled over the decades. Mm-hmm. So now that the square footage that we're occupying is much grander than you know it was maybe in the 40s or the 50s, I can't remember exactly. But at the same time, this explosion of the storage industry that's occupying, you know, I don't know, however many thousands of square miles of, you know, basic basically land across the u.s where people are doing just that Mm -hmm. right just taking all this stuff and locking it away for that very same reason yeah 22 billion dollar storage industry Mm -hmm. that's out there and uh, the guy you're talking about is graham hill i believe uh and he he has one of those tiny apartments in in the film but it's not like a tiny house in the traditional sense that i was so compelled by that living space because it's so functional. I mean, it's 420 square feet, but it mm. sleeps seven. <clears throat> you can feed dinner to 12 people at the same time. It has an office and a movie theater. and yeah, But it's because it's all sort of modular and, and you're able to move, move things around. And uh, it's just a more appropriate use of space, basically. Right. There's this really interesting coalescing of so many variables and factors that have conspired to make this movement of minimalism and tiny houses and sort of stripping your life down to its core and what it really means that is having this very interesting moment in mainstream culture right now. And it makes you think like, why now? Like what's going on? What led up to this moment where you're not the only person who's thinking about these things and then acting on them. There's all kinds of people doing it in very interesting and unique and creative ways. So, you know, what has contributed to that? And, you know, in your movie, you talk about the housing crisis and you talk about, you know, this, we've already talked about this sort of, you know, people who are pursuing the American dream and finding, you know, finding that it's not leading to all these things that we've been promised it would. But what else do you think it is that 
is making this such a thing right now? Well, I think it's an old idea that is a response to a new problem. Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, Thoreau's writing about this like crazy, right? right? Like he's trying to tell us back then. Yeah, and even you know, two thousand years before that, you can go back to the Stoics, the Stoics, of course, or, or any you know, sort of major world religion. There are certain aspects of of you know, simple living or intentionality or whatever you want to call it. I think minimalism as a lifestyle is is a reaction though to this post-industrial post-marketing post-tv age uh, of of overindulgent consumption never before in world history has the everyday consumer using that word deliberately here uh, had the opportunity to be so overindulgent and not even just the opportunity but but almost the expectation now mm-hmm. the average uh, american sees 5000 advertisements a day so it's over a million a year and and when you're exposed to that repeatedly i mean none of us are immune to it I, even me the guy who is you know the minimalists i think we all get we 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 see this barrage of discrete bits of input and and realizing that we have to find mechanisms to be able to deal with that otherwise we're just constantly grasping yeah i mean i think i think that's very accurate and i think that you know as as the we've sort of exported our manufacturing to china and these products are coming back to us they're like basically they're essentially free by comparison to what they would have cost when I was a kid, Mm -hmm. right? Like everything is so much more accessible than it once was. Sometimes they're less than free. It's like meaning... Well, well, I, I think, I mean, there's some things are subsidized. So, like, the, right. you can buy things yeah, yeah, from yeah. Amazon where you're actually getting it. This is way uh, cheaper than it should be. Right. It's, you know it's I mean? cheaper than Amazon pays for it in some right. cases uh, because they're trying to, you know, acquire new uh-huh. long-term customers. And the, the average value per user is is really what they're going after as opposed to losing, you know, a, mm-hmm. a few dollars on this small ticket item here. Right. And as demand ramps up and, and it creates these incredible economies of scale with these big box stores and all of that, which leads to, I mean, it sounds weird and it's a little uncomfortable to call it a disease, but when you see that footage of people going bananas on, what's that Friday called? Black Friday. Black Friday. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like people getting in fights and clawing all over each other and trampling each other. Like people getting killed. Sorry. That is a disease. Yeah. That is something seriously wrong with our priorities and you know how we're perceiving how we should live our lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just absolutely crazy. Have you? Um, do you know Andrew Morgan? He no. Made a, he made a movie called The True Cost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All yeah I've seen True Cost. Fast fashion. Yeah. So I had Andrew on the podcast. We talked all about it. But he used some of that same uh, Black Friday footage in his movie. Uh-huh. You should check. Yeah. So you've seen it. Yeah, right? I've seen it's a it. great movie. Yeah. So it's sort of. It's a, it's kind of, his movie is about an aspect of what your movie kind of addresses more globally. Mm -hmm. So when people think of minimalism, they think, oh, you're going to tell us how to clean out your closet. But it's really about, you know, these cultural misperceptions and these, these sort of bizarre uh, mandates about how we live our life. Like we have to be compulsively consuming at such a level mm-hmm. and, you know, screw the consequences on the environment and my soul <laughs> and everything else that comes with it. Yeah. It's so insane. Yeah. Well, I, you're right. The decluttering is, is that 
important first step, and I don't even like to use the word decluttering. You know, I think the easiest way to organize your stuff is to just get rid of most of it. It doesn't mean throwing it out necessarily. It means finding a new home where someone else can actually get value from it. Just because I don't get value from something doesn't mean that someone else won't. And so, but my mom's stuff was a really good example. Like letting go of much of that. If I'm honest with myself, most of that was just going to sit there locked away in perpetuity, and I wasn't going to get any real value from it. But someone else certainly could. So I donated a lot of it to her friends and and local charities. And uh, the few things I was able to sell, she had some nice antique furniture that she had had for years. And and I took that money and gave it to the two charities that helped her through her chemo and radiation Mm -hmm. and trying to find a way to sort of pay it forward or pay it back or and 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 when does that spill over into you thinking about your own life shortly after that uh, less than a month later my marriage ended and uh, you you could argue that it had been ending for a while right and I I forsook the people closest to me uh, and especially my wife and and because most of my time was spent with networking buddies and executives and acquaintances and customers and, and again, people who aren't necessarily bad, but they didn't share my same values. And even the ones who did, they were getting most of my attention. And so my closest primary relationships suffered. Mm-hmm. And of course, I always thought, well, they'll understand. I'm, I'm off being successful and they love me and they care about me. And they did. But I wasn't showing that I cared about them. I wasn't, you know, every relationship sort of, sort of has an us box. And I was taking much more than I was putting into that box. Mm-hmm. And, and I, was, I would have been able to put more had I reprioritized my relationships and, and my time. And, and so when my marriage ended, I, I just started looking around and saying, what has become my life's focus? And it really turned out that I was so focused on, on a so-called success and, and achievement and, and I was especially focused on and that on, meant what to you like if you had to define it at that time uh, climbing the corporate ladder and, and, and the accumulation of stuff the trinkets of success mm-hmm. being able to show your trophy it's weird like you know if you if you play in the NBA and you win a championship you get the ring but have if I were to come across the ring that doesn't make me the the champion it just means that i found someone's nba ring and that's kind of for a weird way like i was trying trying to show that you know i am a champion of of really this thing that is nonsense anyway i mean it's but beneath that like worthiness of love significance yeah i think i think i think significance plays a big part of it and and i i wanted to be significant because uh, huh oh, because I, I didn't I certainly didn't feel significant growing up mm-hmm. yeah it's, that's weird to even think about but uh, I the, the weird thing is you can't measure significance in that way there isn't a meter like I'm going to get these you know I own two Lexuses. I'm not sure why I own two Lexuses, but I guess having two would make me more significant than having one. But by by that logic, then uh-huh. you know, of course, you need a fleet of Rolls Royces, uh-huh. then, right? And then you, you uh, and it's never ending. And it took your mom's passing and 
the dissolution of your marriage for you to be able to see how you were living more objectively and take action to redirect. Yeah, and really just, just uncovering what was important in my life. What are my values? And, and Because I wasn't focused on my health. I wasn't focused on my relationships. I certainly wasn't focused on this craft that I was passionate about. As I said earlier, I, I aspired to be a writer, but mm-hmm. I didn't put in the time. It's, it's one of those weird things where... I, I guess we think that you know, via osmosis we're going to learn how to write, but you don't hear that about just about any other profession. There aren't aspiring carpenters, like people who want to be carpenters, they go to a trade school and they figure out how to do the thing and then do the thing. And, and so I didn't put enough time into that. I didn't feel like I was contributing to the world in, in a meaningful way. I mean, there's the part in the documentary where Ryan talks about... So Ryan and I worked at the same corporation. We right. kind of... He climbed. like... Yeah, like you kind of brought him on below you, right? And you yeah. guys rose up together. Yeah, I mean, we, we had known each other since we were 10 years old. And um, he he climbed the ranks with me. And I, I hired him. I was a store manager and hired him on to be an employee. And then as every time I got a promotion, he, he would get a promotion and he moved somewhere else in the company and basically we're climbing the the, the ladder together and, and it's telecom you're selling cell phones basically basically yeah i mean and internet and, and home phone service mm-hmm. security systems stuff like that but but yeah telecom and and he had a light bulb moment for him when he realized like he he was encouraging his employees to sell cell phones to five-year-olds right. and, and it's like what am i doing like whoa what is this really what it's about but it wasn't until you had already stepped out and kind of made some changes and rearranged your life in a certain way and he was able to see you as a different person like you were like a happier person yeah and that created some curiosity in him right like that didn't maybe he was feeling that but i'm not sure he would have done anything about it had you not gone first right and kind of led the way and said here's what i'm doing and this is what's making me happier about a week after my marriage ended which was about a month after my my uh, mother passed i stumbled across this thing called minimalism thanks to twitter and and sort of fell down that you stumble upon i mean you must have been looking no i no i actually i hadn't i mean someone had retweeted a video from colin wright uh-huh. And yeah, his story was like really sexy and interesting. Like he travels all over the world. Yeah, it's kind of and a superhero story. It, it really, and you know, he's thirty. What I think he's thirty-two now, and he's written thirty-five books because he <laughs> he every every country he he travels to, he tends to write something while he's there, and he's a very prolific writer. And and. I admired his story, but I didn't want to live his life. I don't want to be a, a peripatetic writer. And, and But he said this thing called minimalism allowed him to pursue what he was passionate about. And I'm like, oh, that's that now that's interesting. I don't want to own 52 items that all fit in my backpack. I like having a kitchen table. I like having you know, a sofa or whatever. There are certain things that add value to my life that aren't going to fit into the overhead bin on an airplane. Mm-hmm. And that's okay because then I, I stumbled across Leo Babalta who has six right. kids and you know, is sort of the ultra minimalist uh, in, in his own respect and, and brought his whole family on I board. Know, he's just amazing. Isn't and he? I started reading his stuff quite some time ago. I have a funny story. Um, I've had emails with him. I've never met him in person. Uh, but when my when my first book came out, I really wanted to send it to him just because I was such a fan of his writing, right? 
and you know he's a vegan and I know he was getting into running and I, I was like he you know he'd be interested in what I'm writing about like I just want to get this to him as a gift and and we had a mutual friend so I was like because I didn't know Leo well enough I couldn't contact him directly and there's sure. like because he's living so minimally he doesn't let any of that in yeah right good for him yeah so my, I was like, you got, I told my friend, I was like, just like, see if he'll like, just, can you get me his mailing address or whatever? Like, he doesn't have to talk to me. I just, he doesn't have to read it. I just want to f- send it to him. And he would not do it. He's like, no, because he won't accept anything, any kind of physical, you know, material thing into his home. <laughs> I was like, wow, that is walking the talk way more than I even thought that he would. I was like, I respect that. That's amazing. Yeah. You know? No, I, I really admire him. And uh, every time we've had the chance to, to sit down and talk, I mean, he, he's been the, the, uh, the probably the biggest inspiration in terms of minimalism for me because I saw now I didn't aspire to be like Colin and I didn't aspire to like be like Leo either who has six kids I didn't want six kids either you know he's a minimalist with condoms even right and we should uh, say Leo's site is zenhabits zenhabits.net yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and, and he's he does a great job with these little personal experiments in his life and and I admired that but after digging into to his life and seeing that, then I stumbled across Joshua Becker, who's in the film, mm-hmm. and Courtney Carver, and Tammy Strobel, and like all these different people. And what I realized is, oh, wow, there are a bunch of different recipes for minimalism. You don't have to live like Leo. You don't have to live like Colin. And you don't have to live like any of these other people. You can sort of just tweeze ingredients out and figure out what your recipe for minimalism is. And, and I mean, ultimately, it's about living a more intentional life, living a, a more meaningful life, and that starts with less stuff. But then, it, ultimately, minimalism, I think, it has to do with the benefits we experience once we're on the other side of, of the decluttering. And that's why I start with that question, how might your life be better with less? Because that helps you identify what, what the benefits are as opposed to just like, I'm going to have a cleaner closet. Like that, that's nice. Yeah. It's, it's less about how many pairs of shoes you have and more about how complex your life is. Right. So I think, you know, technology has a big, you know, is a big contributor to this movement. You know, when we're so distracted by messages, you know, being bombarded at us or by choice through our cell phones. I think you say in the movie, like we look at our, there's a guy who says we look at our cell phones 150 times a day. Mm -hmm. And Sam Harris talks about it as well. We're so easily distracted and allured by that, you know, little hit of dopamine that we can get by constantly refreshing all of these sites and this supercomputer that we have in our hands. And it leads to the inability to, just be with ourselves to carve out space to invest in our imagination and remove all these decisions that ultimately make us busy but aren't necessarily productive and less and less related to life satisfaction have you had cal newport on on your show no, no, do, do you know cal I, have, I know who he is okay yeah. why did I, I just saw something by him recently He's, he, he, so he, he wrote a book called Deep Work, and the, the, the book before that was a book called So Good They Can't Ignore oh, yeah. You. I know. He was just on James Altucher's okay. podcast. I think I just got an email about it. But yeah, I was, I wasn't, I'm not that familiar with him. He's, he's a great guy. He's also, he's, he's 33. He's a tenured professor at, at Georgetown. 
computer scientist, really smart guy, um, and he he just did a, a TEDx talk, I think within the last week or so that got published. Uh, it's just called Quit Social Media. And he comes off at first as almost like this weird sort of a young curmudgeon uh, in in terms of like like almost like a luddite where where but he's not saying that that the internet is bad or connectivity is bad but but he gives a really compelling case now now full disclosure I'm on social media and and um, I try to use it to add value not to just to my life but to other people's lives but it's like anything else right it it, it can become problematic mm-hmm. and, and you're right that that dopamine rush. i mean the the uh, founder of instagram called it visual crack for a reason mm-hmm. and and so we we can certainly get addicted to it and I, I find those tendencies in me and i'm constantly questioning because i'm so far from perfect i find that minimalism isn't about deprivation for me but sometimes i need to temporarily deprive myself of something to see whether or not it truly adds value to my life that's how you get clarity that's how you get clarity. And I, I think, you know, the interesting thing about what you and Ryan are doing and kind of this, you know, uh, the, the way that you have formulated your messaging to the world is, is interesting and, and unique in the minimalist space because it's very accessible, right? And it's very relatable. Like you can get up in front of any kind of person and share your story and people can find themselves in it. And they can find inspiration and tools to make changes in their own life as opposed to, um, you know, someone like Leo, it's like, that's like, wow, I don't know that I can, like, it's so extreme for yeah, most people that sure. it, it, you know, it, it, it prevents people from being able to really tap into it. Like, and also, do you know, um, what's her name? B Johnson? No. The, um, uh, what's her, um, blog called? It's called, uh, no waste home, mm-hmm. no waste light. You know, so she, I've seen her give talks, right. And she's this beautiful woman. She's got a family really nice. They live in Marin. They have like kind of a cool little house, but they're very minimal. And it's all like, you know, you get so many shirts and even their kids, like it's very regimented, but her garbage for the entire year can fit into this mason jar. And right. so she holds it up when she gives talks or whatever. And that's like amazing and inspirational, but also like, I, I don't, you know, like, I, I don't know how, I don't know where to begin with that because right. it's so like, she's living her life so extreme. Like it seems unattainable creating their own shampoo and all this kind of stuff that most people aren't going to do. But so it's not about living in a cave. It's like, how do you live in the world? You know, in a, in a way that, allows you to be connected to other people and share your message, but, but shift your priorities in a way that's healthier. Yeah. I think we all, we, we try to search for the binary answer, you know, because it, it's easier. I wish there was a a guide for here are the thousand things you should own as a minimalist and you'll be happy. Because that would be so much easier. But but the truth is that if you... Well, it's like every blog, here are the five things to, you know, whatever. It's like, does yeah. anyone, does it, do any of those posts ever change anybody's life in any meaningful way? Yeah, I, I doubt it. Um, and yeah, I, I struggle with, the only time I've written any sort of list, whether I guess they're called listicles or whatever, is when it's ironic, right? Um, it, just because... Yeah, the the list in and of itself is is it's kind of vapid. Reductionist too. It is definitely reductionist, and 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 for me, minimalism isn't about 
living an easy life. Uh, it's certainly not like the 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 perfect life either. It's really about about living a a. Uh, it's reducing the the complexity and and making it a simpler life. But there's this idea that you're sacrificing. That on some level, there's part of you that's being a martyr, right? And that's not the case. Like every aspect of your life, from what I can tell, has gotten better and you're happier and more functional and more productive and more imaginative and more creative and more grounded and all of these things, more mindful, et cetera. The list goes on and on and on. Um, And I think the best way maybe to describe it, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, is it's that feeling, there's almost a dopamine or euphoric feeling that you get when you do like give away a bunch of your stuff, right? Like it feels so good to like get, like clear that out. So yeah. why is that? Well, I think why that, is it that that makes you feel good? I think it's unsustainable though. I mean, you're right. There's a but weight. There's something to, to that that is worth paying attention to and unpacking a little bit, right? I think it's when you're making a, a radical positive change in your life, you, you tend to, uh, experience you know, the the requisite your know, positive feelings go along with that when you start you know changing your health and making radical changes in, in your diet or exercise or whatever you, you feel these uh, uh, a certain kind of clarity to use the word that you used earlier and, and I think that feeling isn't necessarily Maybe it's the positive side of it is definitely sustainable, but that you don't. Yes, you get the weight lifted off your shoulders right away, but but I don't think you experience the long term happiness by just getting rid of the stuff. I I think it is the it's the ideal place to start, but but realizing that that it is it's just there to make way for what you're going to bring into your life. What are you going to replace the stuff with? I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Yeah, so I think of it, that's exactly where I was going with my thoughts. I was thinking nature abhors a vacuum. And by removing all these things, you're on some level creating a vacuum. And what gets filled with that is the potential for freedom, right? And I think freedom is is the real gem that exists, you know, kind of embedded in this idea of living more minimally. The favorite thing I... Domain and control over your time. For for me, freedom and my favorite thing I've ever written is is an essay called "The Things We're Prepared to Walk Away From," and in that I talk about the willingness to walk away from from anything. And at first, it sounds kind of cold and even counterintuitive, uh, but I think real freedom is is the ability and the willingness to to let go or or walk away. It, 
the the movie Heat with Robert De Niro. Do you remember that movie? Mm-hmm. Yeah, from from the nineties. Um, uh, he plays the bad guy in, in the movie Neil McCullough, and, and there's a scene in there. He says, "Never bring anything into your life that you're not willing to walk away from in thirty seconds flat." Uh-huh. And well, I certainly don't aspire to be like a bank robber in an action thriller. Uh, that line stuck with me, and I think it's apropos for this minimalism thing because it's not about just letting go of the stuff. It's also being willing to walk away from anything else that I bring into my life, including relationships. I think our willingness to walk away, even from a relationship, is the most sincere and best form of commitment to someone because yes we can sign a marriage certificate that says i'm married to you and and you know we're uh, till death do us part kind of thing but but real commitment is being willing to show up every day and reassess this and say i'm still 100% in this with you and and my partner becca and, and i we're constantly assessing that and and making sure that is this the best fit? And if not, how can we change that? Because we want to be with each other. How and, long have you guys been together? Uh, about a year and a half. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and, and you make it work when you go away on these long tours and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, and she, she comes with me from time to time. She has a, a three-year-old, so I've become a, a parent by proxy in the last uh, couple of years, which has added another layer of, of complexity and, and, and uh uh, variety in in my life yeah. and responsibility and, and gravity too i mean that's that's not a small thing no and it's in all honesty it's the most difficult thing i've had to deal with but i think it it makes in a weird way it makes minimalism even more important because before it was for me and and yes uh, my personal freedom and and regaining control of my time my finances my lifestyle whatever and but now it's it's not just about me, right? And so even that willingness to walk away means the time that I put in strengthens everything that I do, whether it's the business that I run or our website or whatever else it may be. It makes me constantly go and ask, is this still the right path? Mm-hmm. And, and be much more deliberate with those sort of everyday decisions. Mm-hmm. You mentioned heat, but isn't the most... Uh the most emblematic minimalist movie, maybe in a punk rock kind of way, Fight Club. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Fight Club's the ultimate minimalist movie, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, that hits every every button on what your documentary talks about. There's, there's uh, on our website, I think I posted a whole list, like 25 or 30 different quotes from Fight Club. Uh-huh. Yeah, the, the title of, of the essay is, uh, Tyler Durden is a minimalist, and he's definitely he's the he's the king he's the leading he's the leading minimalist. Right, right, but 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 then uh, again, of course, you know, uh, while Ryan and I may be somewhat slightly subversive, it's also not our intent to explode like blow up everything around you. Yeah, yeah. that's why I say punk rock because yeah, right. it's like it's very anarch 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 anarchistic. It is. Uh, and it's weird because we're not even out proselytizing. Like, I don't want to convert anyone to minimalism necessarily. I mean, I don't think that's even possible. There isn't like this, there's no document or baptism I can give you to be a minimalist. I wasn't a minimalist until I said I was a minimalist, right? And, and really what we're doing is sharing a recipe. And, and with the documentary, it's sharing a bunch of different recipes. 
in hopes that some people can find value in it. Most of the people who come to our events probably won't identify themselves as minimalists, but they identify themselves as being sympathetic to the idea of simplifying. Mm-hmm. And, and and even people who get dragged to the events, they're like, I, you know, my wife or husband or sister or brother, whomever dragged me to this event, and now I finally get it. They, they were talking this minimalism stuff, and, and that's why we made the film, is we wanted to make it more accessible. Because you hear that, that term minimalism, and when you when you look at extreme versions of minimalism, whether it's minimalist architecture or or you see photos online of, of the the fifteen things someone owns, that's fine. If you want to do that, minimalism will certainly help you get down to the fifteen items you want to own. That's great. Uh, but you can also realize that you could also have a house in the suburbs, like Joshua Becker with his his wife and two kids, and, and live that kind of minimalist lifestyle and it's just about being more intentional with the decisions you want to make to live the life that you want to lead yeah it's almost like minimalism is almost the wrong word for it's it's really it's about living deliberately it's about it's about making conscious choices uh you know informed by your values to you know live in a way that is going to maximize your your short experience here on earth in terms of satisfaction and service and all of these things and it's not going to be found at target or at best buy yeah right well and there's nothing wrong with the, with the stuff right yeah. yeah it's your relationship to these things right i mean i think you say at the end of the movie you have that great quote uh uh, love the people in your life, not the things, because it doesn't work out the other way, or something like that. Yeah, love people, use things, because the opposite never doesn't, works. Never works, right? And, and well, you're right. You, a second ago, you said minimalism seems like the wrong word, and I think it's exactly the wrong word and exactly the right word for two mm-hmm. s- separate reasons. It's the right word because it, it piques people's interest. They hear minimalism, and at first, it sounds subversive or extreme or radical or 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 stark but that opens the door and and then people realize it doesn't it can be stark i mean honestly my my house uh with me and becca and ella three-year-old it's fairly stark personally but but you don't i mean you can have art all over your house you can be really passionate about collecting angel statuettes and still be a minimalist because if those things add value to your life that's great and, and being being willing to to acknowledge that you can focus more time on it and, and deal with the thing that you're actually passionate about the the the, the stuff isn't the problem we are, are the problem and, right. and the meaning that we give to those things that they don't actually have a meaning except for the meaning that we give to it i know that sounds uh, uh tautological in a way but but Really, that's it. The, the things don't mean anything unless we say they mean something. One of the beautiful things about you know what you and Ryan have done is cultivate the community around these ideas, right? And and you know what started off, I would imagine your first blog post. I think you said like, oh wow, like fifty two people read our blog this month and being like super stoked. Yeah, right? yeah. It was, <laughs> like it was, anybody read it? it was, well, but now it's like you got like five million. Yeah, a and, month or yeah, yeah. Like so that. you have to you have so. to think you have to think about it this way though. So I spent most of my twenties. The only people who read my stuff were people who told me no. It was eight you know, potential agents or publishers or whomever and I was writing these things and so to have 52 people in one month 
read and, and at least ostensibly like uh, the thing, uh, uh, not like in the, the Facebook sense of the word, but but as an internal emotion. And then, you know, 52 turned into 500. And, and, and to me, that that doesn't scale. It's not like when you get to 5 million people, you're like, now I feel 100,000 times better. No, 52 was like this pinnacle for me where, where I couldn't believe that people were actually reading my stuff and commenting. And, and then, yeah, uh, a few dozen people started following us on Twitter. And that was unbelievable because I, it wasn't about developing a following. It was, I write for two reasons, to express myself and to communicate something. And I was finally getting to do that. Without an audience, you can't communicate anything. Right. It's the beautiful thing about the democratization of content creation and distribution that the internet has created, right? You don't need the approval of that gatekeeper. You don't need some editor in New York City to check a box and say, you're worthy of you know, your, your ideas are valuable enough for me to vet them and put them out to the world. Yeah, the, the, the gatekeeper thing, well, there's, an, uh, there's a reason that that was important once upon a time because there, were limited, uh, there was a limited ability to publish you know, a certain number of books and, and that was it. But, but now with, with you know, the technological advances, we have the opportunity to, to sort of be our own gatekeeper. The only, the only person who needs to give you permission is, is you in a way. And in a weird way, then you start getting the permission that you didn't even ask for you no know, longer. I mean, we get so many offers for, for you know, publishing deals and, and other stuff now where, where we're not even asking for that stuff because I finally decided to give myself permission instead of waiting for someone else to say yes. Right. You don't, you don't need that anymore. And I would imagine, you know, part of living minimally is learning how to be very effective at saying no. And I would imagine now you're in a position where saying no is something you have to do a lot. I've gotten good at saying no, but, but it's because I know what I want to say yes to. And, and I think that's what's important. And if, if, if you're saying yes to something, it, it better serve the greater good. And, and that's how, how I tend to look at things. So with, with Ryan and, and, and me, we tend to focus on one project a year. So like getting the documentary out this year was, is the, the one project that we're focused on. And, and every year we'll, we'll focus on one main thing. And then everything else that we do tends to serve that, that project in, in some way. And, and uh, if it doesn't, then I have to be willing to say no, even if it's really cool or exciting or whatever. We, we had a guy who bought this like compound in South Dakota who wanted us to create this whole minimalist compound Mm -hmm. and it was amazing this building was built with all these government funds from the uh, uh, stimulus package but the building just didn't work out for whatever reason this community center and uh, it was the middle of nowhere South Dakota and he wanted us to create this because it had a hotel in it I mean it was this Mm -hmm. beautiful building and it was a great opportunity, but you know we had to say no to that and, and, and dozens of other similar projects, which are really exciting, but it doesn't serve the greater good. And so you could have a watered-down version of, of everything you're doing, or you can have something that's meaningful that you really focus on. Right. Looking back, it looks like all these pieces line up perfectly to create what you guys are doing now. Like, you're like, of course, like this happened, and that led to that, and like it all makes absolutely perfect sense but you said 
early on, you kind of slipped it in at the beginning of our conversation that, you know, you didn't know you were going to be doing this. Like there was no plan. This organically evolved. And, and that's certainly been the defining kind of characteristic of how I've gotten to, you know, be sitting in front of you right now doing this. Like I didn't plan, you know, this was not like, oh, here's my five-year plan. I'm going to quit my job and then I'm going to do this. And then this is going to happen. Like, no, it was sort of doing what was right in front of me to do and learning how to basically everything that I'm doing. And I'm saying this because I want to hear your version of this uh, is a result of me further investing in myself and acquainting myself with myself and then trying to bring my actions in line with my values and trusting uh, my intuition and having faith that that was going to lead me in a direction that would, you know, not just bear fruit, but, but really be the best path for me, right? And it, it seems to me that that's similar to how you've kind of birthed this thing that you're doing. I think, I think the definition of success for me is exactly what you just said, aligning my short-term actions with my long-term values. I don't have any long-term goals per se. I, I also don't have a five-year plan uh, from now. Right. Like where do you see the minimalists in, you know, 2020? Yeah, no idea. I, I, I look, I look, I look slightly toward the horizon occasionally. Yeah. It, the, the metaphor that, that I, that really resonates with me is if you're driving a car, m- most of the time we, I know I did this for, for many decades and I still do it too often, uh, for sure. Most of us are just constantly looking in that rear view mirror, just staring at that rear view mirror and what has happened in the past and then neurosing over what what happened in the rear view mirror. Well, the truth is that if we continue to look at that rear view mirror, we're, we're, we're going to end up getting into a car accident. Uh, but the opposite is also true. If, if we're constantly looking off on the horizon, the the 10-year plan, the 20-year plan, whatever, then we're also going to crash because we're not going to see what's going on right in front of us. And, and I, I strive to be looking at what's going on in front of me. And, and that means right now in the moment and then slightly ahead within, within the next year. And, and then, of course, occasionally glancing in the rear view and occasionally looking off at the, the beautiful sunset or horizon or whatever. And, and anytime I find myself glancing too long, I, I try to correct that. Right, because if I don't, then I'm, yeah, I'm just living for the past or living for some hypothetical future, and and really, I want my my values to, I want my actions to reflect my values, mm-hmm. and the more decluttered your life, the more minimal you're living, the more space you create to be present. Right, I think so. But so, I, and that allows you to be more able to make better decisions. Is that accurate? Is that fair to say? It is absolutely fair to say because once you start being more intentional with with the stuff, which in our culture is is the surface level, the the the, the physical things that are the things that we're constantly acquiring or wanting to acquire, desiring, and, and so once you start being intentional with those things. Then you start being intentional with the smaller, more sort of esoteric decisions uh, as well, and, and 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 making better decisions about the relationships you have, or you know, the food you consume, or or how you spend your time and, and your, your mobility, and just things that that before seem like uh, uh, sort of innocuous decisions, that they become a lot more profound. You realize that you know, the way that uh, the way that you spend your days. 
affects the moment that you're in, but also affects the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And the opposite of intentional being compulsive or reactive, right? And with this uh, like increasingly ever-present technology that's in our lives right now, it's never been uh, more difficult to be non-reactive. Like mm. in other words, it's, it's more challenging to be deliberate and to be conscious because, you know, we have that compulsion that we, you know, as human beings, you know, to constantly be refreshing our phones and be distracted. And, and, and so I think it, it, it makes it even more difficult. Like you have to make almost a much larger commitment to that process than maybe you had to in 1970. Yeah, I I think so. And I think that we'll always be distracted. We've just created better ways and more ways for us to, to distract ourselves, to pacify ourselves. And virtual reality isn't even quite here yet. Wait till that, you know. Right. Like, this is the direction that we're heading in. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to have virtual reality uh, pornography with, uh, on the horizon, and, and we're going to have to find a way to, to develop mechanisms to you know, not stay locked in our houses um, and... and and uh, order, you know, use our the, our smartphone or whatever to order the food that gets delivered to us, and 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 just pacify ourselves all day, because I think we all know that we don't find a lot of purpose in that. We we find momentary blips of of happiness, honestly, and, and that's why I said I don't think happiness is is the point of all of this because there isn't. It's empty. It, they're empty calories. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite books is is Infinite Jest by by David Foster Wallace, yes. and that's a tough one to get through. It, it, you it, got, talk about having to make a commitment. <laughs> that is quite the book. It's easier the second time. Yeah. Um, no, I'm I, still working my way through the first. I'm like two thirds of the way through it, but I'm on like year two of trying to read it. <laughs> it's yeah, well, I, I I read it first when I was 26 and didn't totally get it. Read it again when I was 31 and. Um, yeah, it, it took me an entire year to get through it the first time, mm-hmm. but it is yeah, it's quite the tone. But but there is a, a metaphor in there about about eating candy, and, and I, I, it really resonates with me. Like if you have a a piece of candy, it's not good for you. Obviously, sugar is not good for you. We all know this by now, right? It's also not going to kill you, but if, if your entire diet consists primarily of candy, you get sick really quick. And I think that's where we're going with, with a lot of the technology. It's not that the technology is bad, just like the piece of candy isn't bad, but when we're constantly filling ourselves with these empty calories, there's no nourishment. And, and I think that's, that, that metaphor is apropos for our lives. We need to be able to nourish ourselves with meaningful experiences. Otherwise, we're just eating the, the equivalent of candy. We've been sold this lie that happiness or satisfaction comes from security, uh, comfort, leisure, and the accumulation of stuff. And this equation is faulty, right? And the trick is trying to get people to understand that you can find greater satisfaction and these things that you seek 
but it does require you to get out of your comfort zone and get uncomfortable. And that is so at odds with all the other messaging, which is about, let's be comfortable. You deserve it. You earned it, right? And it's the, it's the actual getting uncomfortable that gives you that value and that, that sense, that thing that you're looking for that's missing in your life, that hole in your soul, in your spirit. I, I call it the discomfort zone. I, whenever I find myself getting too comfortable with something, I will intentionally make myself a little bit uncomfortable. Not suffering or in, in true pain, but, but putting myself in a place of discomfort because I know that's the place from which I grow the most. Uh, in 2014, Ryan and I went on a 100-city, 8-country tour, right? And we spent basically donated 10 months of our lives. And I say donated because all the events were free. And, and, and so you could show up and, right. and, and, and just come out. And, and that's part of the documentary, this kind of like road trip that you guys are on. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which looks super fun. It was you know? super fun. Yeah. yeah. But, but I'll tell you, there are three things I hate. I hate travel, public speaking really? and, and crowds of people don't don't like you know but the minimalist isn't is supposed to be the guy who's going to visit every country right <laughs> you be this travel luxury person. Yeah, and that is not me at all so so travel public speaking and and crowds of people i it's not that i truly hate them i don't actually hate them but all three of those things make me a bit uncomfortable and so getting out there and doing that for 10 months it was a incredible growth experience for me be, because those things were not things that I gravitate toward uh, uh, inherently, naturally, and, and yeah. yeah, naturally. So, so I, it's much easier for me to be to be locked in a room with a blank piece of paper by mm -hmm. myself. It's great in the beginning where you show up at like South by Southwest, and it's <laughs> like no one comes to see you know like. Yeah. But then it builds. I mean, I don't want to. I'm not going to give it away. But I tried to get Matt to add crickets there, yeah. but he wouldn't do it. No, that's a little cheesy. Yeah, I the know, point right? is well made. Um, but you see this, like, you know, this thing building as you guys go and it's really cool to see how it unfolds. It, um, and that, and like, look, if you want to, if you want to create a movement, like you got to get out there and do that, you know, like you got to go and be with the people, man. And you met so many cool, interesting people that would show up like people that you wouldn't ex like you expect a bunch of, you know, bearded millennials to show up in Brooklyn, you know, but like just average people who are looking for something a little bit more meaningful in their lives who don't quite understand who you guys are or where you're coming from but there's something about you that they had to show up and hear what you had to say i've been really surprised by who this message resonates with so the tour before that our, our first tour for our very first book which is a book called minimalism live a meaningful life we went out and uh, I mean, we a big crowd for us was having 12 people in New York City at the time. And, and in fact, we had one stop in, in Knoxville, Tennessee, where no one showed up. And right, right as we were leaving, <laughs> right as we were leaving, like the, this couple came in and they're like, hey, you're the minimalists. And so we just sat, had an hour and a half conversation with two people. But really, that was a, a learning tour for us. And we, we learned a whole lot. Uh, about what resonated with people, what stories we would tell that resonate, and that actually led to to everything that remains, our second book, and and because I figured out all the things I thought were like really profound, mm -hmm. 
people were like, eh, whatever. And then other things that really resonated with people, like Ryan's packing party or, or you know, discovering those boxes under my mother's bed. And those things really resonate with people in a way that I thought those were just kind of throwaway stories for some reason. Yeah, but it's reason. human. You know, people have to be able to emotionally connect with what you're talking about, not just yeah. academically or intellectually understand the concepts, but mm-hmm. they have to like, like I said at the beginning, they have to see themselves in you. And I think that's what you guys do a great job with. Well, I appreciate that. And I think, I think it bears, it's worth noting that beneath all of this, like at, at the very core is this unbelievable friendship. Right? Yeah. Like you're, you get to do this cool thing with this guy you've known like fifth grade like when yeah. did you guys become friends yeah, 25 that's years ago really quite you know that's quite something yeah and, and so so and we're uh, almost exact opposites in fact if you look at the myers-briggs we are opposites in terms of personality uh-huh. he is an extrovert i'm an introvert he's very in the moment i'm very planning like just uh, i i we're exact opposites but uh, if, you, if you also look at our, our uh, if you, you compare our two personality types, we have a pedagogical relationship. We're both mentors and mentees toward each other. And that has made for a really great friendship. And, and, and being able to get out there and, and see different people who Ryan's story will resonate more with one person, mine will resonate more with someone else. It has been an opportunity to share these different perspectives because my recipe is different from his and, and also sort of attack the same message from, from two different sides. And I mean, we've had 13-year-olds bring their parents to events. We've had great-grandmothers. You saw one in the documentary very briefly. She's a 93-year-old great-grandmother in San Diego who brought four generations of daughters with her. And so you, you have these people where the same message is resonating with people from all over the spectrum. A CEO and a factory worker came to the same event in Atlanta, and you realize, okay, like the, the, these people are asking the same question. They manifest differently, but ultimately we're all asking, how do I live a more meaningful life with this life that I've been given? Mm-hmm. Super cool, man. I'm, you know, I'm sitting here as you're, as you're talking about that and I'm thinking about like, what does minimalism mean to me? Or like, what is it, what's beneath it that resonates with me? And I think, you know, one of the things that keeps coming up in my mind is this idea of attachment and non-attachment, right? It's, it's not the things, it's not the TV, it's not the car, it's your relationship to it and, and beneath, and, and what is that relationship? And that brings up, you know, attachment and non-attachment. And in my own experience, in my own kind of like evolution and trajectory, uh, I have learned that the more I can detach from certain things, like my expectations for an outcome in a situation, my attachment, my detaching from the meaning of whatever that material possession is, detaching from how I think things should play out or how I think other people should behave, the more I can change that to, you know, pull back from that, understand that I don't have control over these things to detach is kind of almost a mental minimalism that I think is, you know, kind of seated just beneath the surface of cleaning out your closet. I love that word, although it's so weird that we use it as a pejorative. He's so detached. Mm-hmm. I want to say thank you. <laughs> if someone were to say you're so detached, because what's the opposite of that? Attached? 
You you would never describe that he's so attached. I mean, right? You're it, you're living through like you're so invested in what somebody else is going to do or say or whatever. Like that you have actually abdicated your life. You've given control over your well being, your emotional state to some situation or person or event or object. Yeah, and that's disempowering. It absolutely is, and and. and I think once we realize that, once we realize that the stuff can augment our experience of life, and that's a very good thing. I'm not an ascetic. I don't want to go live in a cave right. somewhere. I want to own things that bring value to my life. They serve a purpose or they bring me joy and get rid of the excess that doesn't do that, right? Yeah. You're not wearing a hair shirt. You're actually super styled out. Like, <laughs> I, like, actually, I'd like to find out where you get your clothes because they're pretty cool. Um, so yeah, you're not, you're not living in a cave. You're like right. a dude in the world, you know? Yeah. I, well, that, that's really the intention is I want to be able to live in the world uh, and, and, and do a better job of that. Mm-hmm. Whereas before I was sort of living this box life where where everything fit into a box you know even yeah i was stuck in a box all day and quite literally being in an office somewhere and and everything about that life was going with the flow and the problem with that is eventually you end up at the rapids or the falls and if you keep going with the flow and you don't realize that's where you're headed, you're right. in for a world of hurt like I was. Yeah. And, you know, I had a my version of that in my life. I had to, you know, suffer through some things that I don't wish upon anybody. But that was my, you know, my wife calls it your divine moment. Like that, that painful thing that happens that shakes you to your core and gets you to reevaluate your life. You had your divine moment. And she always says, like if someone's suffering or they're in pain, our natural inclination as a human being is to rush in and make it okay or solve it. And she's like, it's very wise. She's like, always be aware that, you know, this is their divine moment. Like don't necessarily intervene. Like, because this could be the thing that's going to change who they are. It could be the best thing that's ever happening to that ever happened to them, right? We don't know. Maybe not always, but but there's something to that, I think. And and so I'm always thinking about not that you not necessarily how do you sidestep that, but not every you don't have to suffer to change your life or make this different decision. Like it's just harder. Right. Like what would, you know, you, you could have any day in your job, you could have woken up and said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to do this other thing without having to, you know, sort of suffer the loss of your mother and the divorce and all of these other things. It just doesn't usually happen that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mean? like sometimes some of us need to be, be shook. Yeah. uh, Awake. Cause you got to wake up from, it's like, it was so severe in Fight Club that he actually developed another personality that had to shake Spoiler up his life alert. For, for him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, his personality split in half. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's funny though because that's another reason that Ryan's story resonates with with people is he didn't have that that divine moment other than he saw that I was happy and he sat me down one day. It wasn't like there was one epiphany though. Right. He just sat. We went to lunch one day and. It was about eight months after I'd started simplifying. So eight months after my marriage ended, and I'd gotten rid of about ninety percent of my stuff. But like, and he had been over my house and stuff, and he just 
but uh, looks tidy, whatever. Like he just didn't, he wasn't like, I didn't ever jumped up and said, look at me, I'm becoming a minimalist and mm-hmm. you need to too, because you've got no, a lot that, of stuff. That never works. No, anyway. I mean, he, and, and, uh, he sat me down and he said, why the hell are you so happy? And uh, that opened the door for me to start talking about what I had done. And, and him being the very type A guy that he is, he's like, you spent eight months getting rid of your stuff? Like, I want to do that now. Like, I, I, I can just make this happen now. See, that's awesome. Like, that's harder. You yeah. Know, it's easier to kind of make that choice when your back's against the wall and you've been stripped down and all this and suffered and all of that. But just to wake up one day and go, I like what that guy's doing. I'm going to do that too. Right. I'm going to try it out. It seems more simple, but actually I think that's the much trickier thing to do. Yeah, And, and he did it in a way that he knew he could go back. Uh, he did this thing called a packing party and, and uh, we did a, a whole like TEDx talk about it. Mm-hmm. But um, basically he, uh, the, the short version is he boxed up all his stuff as if he were moving and, and he spent the next three weeks unpacking only the items he needed so that first night you know his toothbrush and toothpaste and whatever and and, and clothes for work etc 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 he goes through that whole process 21 days unpacks the furniture he actually uses i mean he boxed up everything as if he were moving because he knew that the time you're forced to deal with your stuff is when you're moving. You have to confront every object you own when you're moving. Well, he wasn't moving, and he had this 2,000-square-foot condo with two living rooms and three bedrooms and two bathrooms, and, and, and it was full of stuff, but he didn't know what was adding value to his life anymore. Mm-hmm. And so he did that experiment for three weeks, unpacked only the items he needed, and at the end of those three weeks, we were, we were in his second living room together. He had all these boxes stacked halfway to his 12-foot ceiling, and... He's like, Josh, I can't even remember what's in most of these boxes. Like, I know that one says bathroom or living room or whatever, but like, I don't remember what the contents of the boxes are. And all these things that are supposed to make me happy, I work so hard for these things to make me happy, they're not doing their job. And that was his light bulb moment for him because he knew that at the end of that experiment, he could just unpack everything and sort of move back into his condo, right? But, being, but having it in a box and not being able to see it really hammers home this point of, like, I've done that. I've put stuff in storage, and then you forget about it, and you're like, why did I even care about that? Like, yes. then you don't ever want to go back, right? Like, right. you get it. Like, you're, you never go back and unpack it and put it back in your house. Yeah. Um, but I think behind that, too, is it, that is still easier than... Like letting go of the stuff is easier than letting go of the idea of who you are. And mm. I think that's really what minimalism is. It's challenging you to reevaluate not just your relationship with material possessions, but that story you tell yourself about your identity and like who it is that you are and what you do and, mm-hmm. and what's meaningful to you. And Qu- what quite your often, though, are. I find that, that a lot of those things make up a, a large chunk of that identity or at least so so mm-hmm. we think because i remember when he was right, go- so changing the getting rid of that stuff is the is the beginning process of of getting you to change the other aspects of who you are yeah yeah i mean when we were going through that packing party he had a bunch of like, president's club awards and the equivalent of trophies basically these really nice glass awards that you could hurt, hurt someone with they were so heavy and he was a re- he was really good at what he did, and I remember him like having a really hard time with getting rid of those because he's like, well, these aren't 
adding value to my life in any way. Like, I don't even like the way they look. I mean, uh-huh. they're, they're these tro- but I'm displayed them because that's who I am basically. And they are a part of my identity. But so I think letting go of some of those sort of trinkets that we, we tie success to, for me, it was books. I had 2000 books. Now I'm not telling anyone to get rid of their book collection. Uh, but for me, uh, by the way, I had read some of those books, but you know how it goes. You go, you yeah. go to the, the bookstore. I'll buy this one and this one and this one and this one, and, and you aspire now you to read get them. Sent books all the time, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we get quite a few, um, and and so I I had this huge, beautiful bookshelf with with two thousand books on it, and and I realized like, oh, I never went to college, and. I'm displaying these so everyone can see them. So I appear to be smart when, when you know, friends or guests or, or whoever comes over. And they aren't really serving much of a purpose. I'm not reading the vast majority of them. And in fact, by letting them go, maybe they could add value to someone else's life because they're not going to get read here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've dealt with other people who, uh, while we've been on the road, say, I can't get rid of my books. I just love the way they look and smell. I share them with my friends. We have great conversations with them. And I'm like, great, you should keep your books. Sounds like you get a lot of value from those books. And I wouldn't want you to deprive yourself of that. And, and I think the point is that those things for me were sort of trophies of, of my identity. And, and there are a lot of things that were, were similar to that. Right. There's this beautiful idea uh, in the movie that I think encapsulates you know, everything that you guys are and do. And it's a question. And the question is, what if everything you ever wanted isn't what you actually want? Right. And I think that in a nutshell kind of says most of what you guys do. Is there any additional thoughts that you have on that? Yeah, I think we we strive for a thing that we don't we don't ask ourselves why we're doing what we do. And I know I certainly didn't. I was following a template because I believed that success was always right around the bend, happiness, uh, achievement, whatever you want to call it, was always right around the bend. But of course, once I got there, I was already moving toward the next achievement marker, or whatever, and. and by stepping back and asking why, why do I want this? What's the purpose behind this? That will help me in in one of two ways. It'll help me realize maybe I don't actually want the thing that I want, or if I do want it and I'm able to formulate a good why, well, that gives me much more leverage to continue to pursue the thing instead of just blindly going down the path toward, toward the thing. So asking myself why has helped me, has helped me figure out that, that I can, uh, it gives me the, the, the motivation or, or, or the inspiration that I need to, to continue to pursue the thing I want to pursue. That's beautiful, man. I think it's a great way to end it here. But I think the last thing I want to ask you before we completely wrap it up is, um, you know, somebody's listening to this and they're digging where you're coming from and are interested in perhaps you know, maybe doing their own packing party or at least entertaining the thought of getting more minimal? What is the, what are the suggestions that you make, you know, as initial first steps? Sure. Well, 
I think there are a bunch of things you can do. The packing party tends to be too extreme for, for most extreme. people. <laughs> and, although I can tell you, we, we've had dozens, if not hundreds of readers who have sent us pictures and, and uh, they've done their own packing party. Also, a lot of people do uh, like a one-room packing party. Uh-huh. So you're like, I've got that third, you know, that, that third bedroom, the guest bedroom that's become really a guest storage closet. You can start with that. Uh, the thing that I, I really recommend because it gives you the momentum you need is something called the 30-day minimalism game. And uh, you can find it at theminimalists.com slash game but here's how it works real quick basically you decide to let go of some stuff with a friend so over the course of a month you decide we're both going to let go together it's to inject some friendly competition into decluttering because i think decluttering is kind of inherently boring and so at the beginning of the month you each get rid of one item on day one day two two items day three three items so it starts off really easy you get that momentum you need but by day 15 you're like oh 15 items today right Day 16, 16 items. Day 20, 20 items. Whoever goes the longest wins. If you both make it to the end of the month, you both won because you've both gotten rid of about 500 items. And, and I think it's a really good start, but it's also a great way to help keep you accountable and make it a little bit more enjoyable. Right, make it fun. And I like how it builds. It does. Like it starts off easy and it quickly starts to get tough. Yeah, it, it, it definitely it, it builds, but, but it also uh, it, it gives you... It gives you that uh, the ability you need to start somewhere, mm-hmm. because most of us don't know where to start or how to start, or it's overwhelming. Three hundred thousand items. What am I going to do? Well, we're going to start somewhere. Yeah. And I think that's that's the important takeaway, if if nothing else. Cool, man. Thanks so much for doing this. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. The the documentary is just. I'll say it again. It's just fantastic. I absolutely loved it. Um, and next week it's coming out on iTunes and Amazon, September thirtieth. It yeah. is. And I, I just got to say thanks to to our director, Matt Diavella, is a just a yeah. genius. How'd you find that guy? We we did a book trailer for Everything That Remains. We hired him for it, and I was just really impressed by it. And so. He agreed after after much uh, uh, arm twisting to go on the road with us for a large chunk of our tour and go out and interview people. And he had done a bunch of commercial work that was really beautiful, but he had never done a feature length film. And he was really wanting to do something that was more meaningful. And this was just a good opportunity. It was great, man. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, so the best place for people to connect with you and your mission, theminimalist.com uh, and The Minimalists on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah. yeah, and Facebook. And Facebook. And you personally, what are your like social media? Uh, on Twitter, I'm at JFM. On Instagram, I'm at Joshua Fields Milburn. And I think that's about JFM it. JFM on Twitter. Yeah. That's some good real estate. Yeah. It's also appropriately minimal <laughs> did you get that before you were a minimalist or did that come with being did was there was that a conscious choice yeah i just asked twitter for it and they said yes yeah. so oh, i was cool. yeah someone was parked on it right on man and uh and after the launch of this documentary what's what's next for you guys I don't know yet. 2017, we're, we're still looking at the thing we're going to focus on. Uh, I'm, I'm suspecting we, we may get back to basics. Uh, there's also some TV stuff we've been working on, but uh, I don't have a theme for 2017 yet, so stay tuned. Right on, man. Well, best of luck to you, and uh, shout out to Ryan next time. Maybe I can uh, sit down with both of you guys, or maybe I'll have to go out to Montana and sit down with him. Oh, that'd be awesome. Love, love to have you anytime. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks, brother. Peace. Lance. All right, we did it. Hope you guys enjoyed that. I totally dug Joshua. Super cool. Please make a point of checking out their new documentary, Minimalism. It is really great.
great. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I got a ton out of it and I can't recommend it enough. As always, please refer to the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com for all kinds of links and resources uh, about Joshua and Ryan and the books they write and the things they do. Uh, We put a lot of time into those show notes uh, and it's really definitely well worth your time and attention. Uh, Thank you for sharing the show with your friends and on social media and your colleagues and spreading the word. I love you guys for that. Thank you for leaving a review on iTunes. Please take a moment and do that if you haven't already. And also click that subscribe button if you haven't already on iTunes. Mad love, of course, to everybody who has made a practice of using the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases. And also to everybody who has contributed to the mission through Patreon. We love you and greatly appreciate that. You can find the, the Amazon banner ad and the Patreon banner ad on any episode page on my website. Uh, Also, for those of you who are new, I thought I would mention that every week, every Thursday, I send out a free short email blast that has a few, maybe five or six tips, tools, resources, documentaries, books, articles, products, things I've enjoyed, things that have inspired me, I've found useful. I'm never going to spam you. It's totally free. It's up to you guys, but people that have been receiving it have been really enjoying it. I've been doing it about 13 weeks at this point, uh, and I don't share any of this information on my blog or anywhere else. So if you want in, just subscribe to that on my website. Plenty of places to enter your email address. Thank you, Jason Camiolo, for audio engineering and production. Uh, Thank you, Sean Patterson, for all the help on graphics. Chris Swan for production assistance and all his help compiling the show notes and finding the quotes from the episode. Thank you. Uh, And theme music by Analemma. Thanks for the love, you guys. I really appreciate it. Here is your final thought. Uh, Over the next week, I think it would be really cool, I think it would be very productive to do a simple inventory of your possessions. Uh, I think that would be very informative in helping us get in touch with what we really use and need. Uh, What's just taking up space? What about that storage locker you haven't visited in five years? And and what are the things you're holding on to that you never use but you keep around anyway because one day you might want to use them? And whether you end up giving up some of this stuff or not, I think it's a worthy exercise in evaluating uh, your relationship to your material possessions. Uh, And then when it's all said and done, maybe you'll gather a few up, donate them to charity, and then you can observe how much better it's suddenly going to make you feel. See you guys soon. Peace.